We're checking along to the end of Season 3 of the Improv Comedy Connection podcast. I'm your host, Witchiller, and together we've been exploring the practice theory and experience of improv and comedy, but we've also been doing so with a consideration of the history and evolution of improv generally. And today's episode gives us a chance to look at the whole of all of that with Aretha Sills. Aretha is a great instructor in and of herself, but she also has special insight that comes with being the granddaughter of Viola Spolin and the daughter of Paul Sills. Viola Spolin is generally regarded as the mother of improv, which would make Aretha the niece of improv. Don't worry, I got a table of consanguinity to confirm that that's so. Regardless, in reconsidering the genesis and revolutionary utilization of theater games and the experiential learning approach of Viola Spolin against the backdrop of a variety of narratives about what improv is, it becomes apparent that not only are some unaware of the impact and importance of Viola Spolin, but that the mother of improv has been written out or ignored to our detriment. Hopefully we help right some of that wrong in this episode. I know you're going to enjoy listening to Aretha's perspective and wisdom regarding improvisational theater and instruction, so let's talk with improv's favorite niece, Aretha Sills, on the Improv Comedy Connection. We waited until you were in Wisconsin, the home (laughs) of improvisational theater in the universe. Well, it is, at least for today, anyways. Um, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Um... We have a lot of places that we could start. Um, I, I will give a little bit of an intro to you. I think a lot of people are familiar with you and certainly with your grandmother and your father. Um, let's. I'd like to start with a general question to maybe kind of frame a little bit of our discussion and our time together. Um, with respect to Viola Spolin, what do you think she would have as a definition for improvisational theater? She actually, I'm, I'm trying to recall the exact quote because she basically says it. Uh, um, I need, I'm, it's, I'm, I'm still in a holiday fog, wit, so you know, I'm a little <laughs> slow today. It's just a few days after Thanksgiving. Um, uh, she says that improvisation is openness to experience, basically, like playing a game. I mean, I'm cutting out the, I'm sort of shortening the quote a bit. Right. Um, it's, op- uh, let me see if I can find the exact quote, but it, it's it's openness to experience and willingness to play and connect with other people as in playing a game. I did see that quote. I don't have it handy myself. But I wondered how much she would draw a line between improvisation and improvisational theater. I can't speak for her, so I don't. I don't. I don't know how I can answer that question. Can you? Can you like tell me what you mean a little bit? Well, here's some of what I guess. Uh, maybe this will be a little different place to start in in sort of the lead up for today and things that I've heard about you and maybe you can share a little bit about your position with the um, with the charitable organization or the educational organization that you're a part of I think legacy is an important aspect and I think Viola's legacy I think your dad's legacy as well um, I feel like is in some ways more of a topic um, and a point of exploration as improv in this pause, of sorts has been trying to figure out its its roots, what's its foundation or things like that. So to me, I feel like there is a legacy 
of violas in particular that people are trying to figure out. And she was an educator. She was an actress. She was a director. She was a writer. She was all kinds of things. But if maybe a way to to phrase the question a little bit differently, what do you think she viewed as, uh, or how does the family view her biggest contribution to the theater, to improv, to education? Where, where, where would you place her in, in many ways? Well, that is a big question. There, it, I think Jeff Sweet quoted Severn Darden in something wonderful right away saying, Viola is too vast. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't try to place her. Viola yeah. is hard. I think she's difficult for contemporary people to understand that she is the originator of theater games. She is the originator mm-hmm. of the art form that most people practice as improvisational theater, whether they know it or not. Because most of them were not told this. And they don't, her, her, her discoveries really come from a source as well in the progressive education movement, Stanislavski and many different, you know, she had many different wonderful teachers, which is why um, she was able to uh, create such um, an innovative, like way of teaching, method of teaching. And I think that, uh, and, and also why her work goes in so many directions but she also created something new out of that like there Mm -hmm. was she talked you know in her work in in true improvisation there's a meeting of people in the free space as paul would say probably quoting martin buber and in that when when people meet each other without preconception without judgment as in the game of mirror a transformation occurs and so whatever happened with all that good stuff viola was exposed to through Hull House and through that, that, you know, those group of progressive people who believed that the, a first generation American born girl like her was deserving of an education, whatever happened, you know, when that, when that child meets the education, a transformation, an explosion occurs. And Viola is one of those great leaps um, from what her teachers did to what she decided to do with them. She, she said the reason she was the person who that leap occurred through was because she was a dedicated student of the theater and she was a creative group worker as she called it which was what they called the kind of social work that she practiced that she learned from neva boyd so viola uh, is uh you know her nickname as a girl was spark Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was a spark, right? And so I think it is hard for people to grasp how vast Viola is, how much, uh, how influential she is, because the work that she created has been foundational, not just in improv, which is different than improvisational theater in some ways, I guess, improv comedy and improvisational theater. To me, it's all the same, but there's offshoots. But yeah. in uh, in ensemble theater, in uh, in the teaching of acting, uh as um, and and then in using games and improvisation as an educational method in such a huge variety of fields, in all of that, and uh, you know just ensemble, the uh, so Viola's work maintains like it just. I think the hardest thing for people to understand right now in this pause in improvisation, where which I think is that was a good way of putting it, where people are like, "Oh wow, where did we come from? Oh wow, we have a woman originator that we forgot about and abandoned." 
<laughs> in mm-hmm. some ways. I would mm-hmm. say that that's maybe not entirely fair, but close. Uh, I always say improv has mother issues. But <laughs> that, that we forgot that there was a source to this, and the source has everything we need yeah. to solve the problems we're facing or, or has, has clues to what we need to solve the problems that we're facing. Maybe we should go back and check it out. I think that that would be helpful right now. Well, when looking at things like the progression of Second City and like your dad's involvement with them and and your grandmother's as well, it seemed that there was a, and I don't think this is controversial, a disconnect in terms of goals or uh, maybe the, you know, the, the what was going to be put on stage and what its purpose was and things like that. And so you had at the same time, or close to the same time, your father and grandmother, the mother of improv, moved away from the Second City. And obviously Second City has had its own success and its own arc since then, but that disconnect was pretty early on. Oh, yeah. Do, do you have a sense of what that disconnect was? And if we were to reel it back or go back and discover those roots, what might be a preferred arc, at least from the Sills Spolin family generally. Well, are you, what, when you say the disconnect, could you clarify what you mean? Because I can assume what you mean, but I, I want to make sure I'm answering the question. Well, I, I would be more uh, interested in how you would describe the disconnect, <laughs> but I do see, uh, here's one, I'll, I'll say this. One of the things that seemed to me like with the David Shepard, and David Shepard had his his own um, issues and, and uh, things to work through in his own perspective. But he was he was very much interested in having a, a theater of the common man, I think is how he put it, or the common person. And that was not the vision that everybody had. And so he'd moved on to the next thing, and, and then that kind of went away. To me, when I look at at least how some of the things are described from your father, is that um, one, he had a a sense of what Viola's games, theater games were about and what they could accomplish and how they should be implemented. But he also had a bit of a a political angle that I think was important to him that seemed like that would get lost in the commercial. Oh, absolutely. Paul wasn't a commercial soul. It, It interested him so little. I can't even... I can't even explain it. I, I mean, I, it's so Paul left Second City in 1965. I think he sold his share in Second City, and they pretty much immediately fired Viola. They say she was complaining about the management or something, which is a hilarious because I mean, I, I only learned that from uh, Sheldon Patinkin said that in a improv nation. I, it's hilarious because everyone complained about the management at second city. So like, (laughs) (laughs) that's not the reason clearly. Cause I, I mean, I think that's a given for, and, and I remain so to this day, Paul left second city because it wasn't, he wrote about this really eloquently in his book, story theater Four shows. And, and there was another, there's, there's some, there's an interview with him from 1964 in a, in a theater magazine where he's discussing how he wanted to change Second City to be a theater game format, pure games. Be- mm-hmm. And because that's where he, he, he felt that the, that those explosions of laughter that, you know, transform everyone in the room. That's where he experienced that coming from. And, mm-hmm. 
he always, you know, he loved creating those sort of politically charged and socially charged Second City shows, I believe. But he had, um, he wrote that it was after the assassination of Kennedy and the civil rights movement and the war. He was, uh, he, he, he said, this is a quote, the soul of the American people is beyond satire. And he wanted something closer to the connection of between people that he was finding in theater games where and 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 he was finding that a more powerful way to counteract you know the just the real feelings of powerlessness and uh rage you know some things we're all beginning to really truly understand (laughs) um and and i think I mean, if you want to read what he wrote about it, I get that book. It's it's quite yeah. it's, it's an incredible thought. And he what they so what they started to do was they gathered people from Second City and local community activists and their friends and artists mm-hmm. and neighbors, and they began playing Neva Boyd's games in the park. And mm-hmm. then uh, so they were just it like it was like a discovery time just playing games and then so the traditional children's games that neva boyd gathered and that's all they were doing uh, and uh and then they and this was with viola then they went inside because it got too cold and started playing theater games and this would all was also including this wasn't just professionals like second city it was <laughs> it was community mm-hmm. members and whoever wanted to be in was in and then they opened it up to the public and they would perform theater games for the group. It was called the Game Theater. And their logo was like a circle and it said audience players, audience players just going around. And it was, and Viola would lead the games and the audience would play if they chose. And right. um, uh, and there were all sorts of activist stuff going on in the same space. And they started a co-op nursery school there. And did you Did you ever get into that? School or did it close before you would have been that age? I was in the very last year. You were, okay. But they weren't involved at that point. You know, the parents, it was called the parent school and it stayed open past Paul and Viola. It actually turned into kind of a large school. I was, uh, yeah, I was too young for the first, uh, my, my my older sisters were in it. And the, the parents were the teachers, my dad drove a VW bus and my mom taught art and they had theater games and art and it was, you know, art and arts driven curriculum. Uh, and I, I was in the very last year, which was, I think, 1981. I was in, I was like 10 or 11, 10. Yeah. But it was, uh, Paul once said that the community should be more interested in the community than the theater. And so that, this was sort of Paul's ideal not yeah. second city. And he, yeah. and, and it was through doing that, that he discovered story theater, which was a, uh, improv, improvisationally driven form of theater based, you know, a, a way to use the transformational space that they had discovered in Spolin that had so much rich theatrical possibility mm-hmm. and adapt their fairy tales and folk tales for the stage. And he worked in that form and, and also theater games for the rest of his life. But he, yeah, um, they discovered that through the game theater. And so he needed to get away from Second City to just. Dis- to explore new things. And I don't think, so he, he decided not to change second city. They were fine doing what they did. Mm-hmm. But honestly, he said, I think, you know, Richard Christensen once asked him about second city, uh, you know, or, or you know, the but he will about leaving. Like, why did you leave second city? He said, everybody left second city. 
hmm. pretty much, you know, if you, all the the players moved on. But he he admitted if he had stayed at Second City, it wouldn't he would have changed it. Yeah. It wouldn't have been a commercial thing that lasted so many years because he was always experimenting and it wouldn't have necessarily drawn an audience. He gave out tickets for free to the first story theater shows because he wanted the people in the neighborhood to be there and the kids to be there. And I mean, he wanted it to be, to be, you know, and, and I think that was his vision. And also back to your original question, someone once asked Viola, in what way did Second City fulfill your vision? And in what day, way did Second City not fulfill your vision? Mm-hmm. And she said, my vision is a world of accessible intuition. Mm-hmm. That was her answer to that question. <laughs> to both questions? Then, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh-huh. She didn't answer that question. But yeah. in a way, I mean, uh, you know, in my life, I remember Paul and my mom, Carol Sills, who was very involved in that period getting annoyed at how much they were asked about second city because they had a lifelong theatrical expression second city was a part of it and they were very proud of what they did there but it was only a part and um and i think improv has that you know back to your original question improv has some soul searching to do right now improv is a part of the world of theater but Mm -hmm. sometimes i think there's a sense that they're unto themselves Oh, I think I think that's absolutely true, right? Because uh, and and there's this, at least in the U.S. I think this is true in other parts of the world too. There is this uh, tug between the comedic world, which yeah. is not all theatrical, and the theater community. So you've got a couple of streams that are kind of in a little bit of a tug of war, perhaps, or different sensibilities. Can you describe what a theater game show? would look like sure we do them all the time right you just play theater games i mean paul would even and he paul had a an amazing professional company do do shows of theater games starting in los angeles and then they it was some of the original second city players and committee players people he'd worked with for many many years was like uh Dick Shaw, Richard Libertini, Valerie Harper, Avery Schreiber, Mina Kolb, Hamilton Camp, Severn Darden, you know, uh, really like the best <laughs> of the best. Uh, my sister Rachel Sills would play with them, and they and she went to New York with them. They went to from L.A. to New York. It got taken to a pretty large theater in New York. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's just on and on. The people who who played with them were really wonderful so they would he would even start out with like the whole audience if you wanted you can join in and play streets and alleys you know like because we always begin a a Spolin theater game workshop with the traditional children's game of some sort and so they start out like that and then they'd move into a game like who am i which is a a theater game where one player leaves the room and the rest of the audience would decide who they'd be and mm-hmm. then they come back and the the, uh, the the other players have to put them in the wear and get them involved in an activity and show and not tell who they are. And of course, these guys were so adept at this and they knew everything. Yeah. I mean, I, I've never, you know, these days we, we have trouble sometimes with references and we don't all share a common bed of knowledge. You know, these guys knew everything, not just like what 
what their generation should know. They went all the way deep into history. So, of course, that game was a lot more fun with them. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do have a common bed of knowledge. It's Wikipedia. We just don't have it plugged in, yeah. in our brain. <laughs> Somehow they did, right? Yeah. 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 And um, it was they were pretty incredible. And then there'd be theater games that, and some of them were, they would do games like animal images or they would um, transform from animals. And they would do a game that was, goes back to Elaine May that isn't a, it was like based on a theater game, but the first line, last line, they love to do that one. And that one, the first line is given and then you have to run to the last line. Yeah. The, you get the first line and last line from the audience yeah. and the rest yeah. emerges through the who, what, where as in every right. theater game. And then do they would uh, do building a story, you know, and um, contact, Oh my gosh. It's just, it, and there were so many different theater games that would come in and out the game theater. They love to do games like jump emotion. Theater games work incredibly well in performance. Mm -hmm. um, and I do them. I do do them. Paul would end every, almost every workshop with a performance. Like, so you'd bring in, this was also his idea of the community theater. We'd, in Door County, they'd be in the barn in Wisconsin here. Mm -hmm. Um and all the neighbors would come, you know, and and the players who had come from around the world would play theater games for the neighbors in Door County. And then afterwards, there were brownies and hummus and some lining kugel or whatever and <laughs> lemonade. And we'd all gather. And it was, it's part of the communal experience of of the way that that, that brings everyone together. It was, it's delightful. Yeah. I, I just I just love the pairing of brownies and hummus. Oh yeah, you don't have to eat them together. But that was just always they'd be on you know separate trays with you know okay, you, got, right. you got your crew to take. But yeah, and then oh, and then the shows would always end with like transformation of relationship, right? Which is the most amazing, uh, incredible, powerful game, and it it always they all the shows always work. Mm -hmm. There's no like I think improv, you know they. They think because they're well, because comedy doesn't always work for an audience, right? Um, so they forget. Well, if you in theater games, it always works because they're always the audience is always involved, no matter what, yeah. and interested. And so, you know, we don't have that same fear. I mean, the player does until they get over it, until they realize, oh, the audience is a fellow player. But, um, when the audience is watching, my, I mean, my dad said to me, you know, you don't have to worry about anything because the audience just can't believe they they can't believe you're doing it they're just glad it's it's you and not them for right. one thing so they're, right. they're already right. like they love you and yeah. they're thrilled or they're thrilled that and then but then they get to see this amazing stuff happening and so there is no like you never really fail unless you're trying to be funny in a in a yeah. in a theater game show why, why do you think that's not more of a model performance than than it is Oh, I just think there was a whole a whole industrial complex sort of thing emerged where people just went that way. They learned Paul and Viola kind of, you know, Paul Paul had his acting school in New York and he did yeah. a lot of stuff. He did a lot of shows and a lot of, you know, theater. Um, but he didn't like come to Chicago and say study with me. It, it's you know, just a couple of years there in the early eighties when we lived there and then he moved mm -hmm. away. But a whole, you know, some sort of cult and 
and I, I don't mean that in such a negative way, but a, a, a mm -hmm. sort of mystique emerged around, uh, you know, other schools where you would study a particular method and do a, a specific kind of show. And I still wonder why that specific kind of show has such a hold on the improv world when there's the, you know, the sky is the limit right. uh, with what you can do in an improvised way. But um, yeah, you know, they weren't, Paul, they were not commercial people, like I say, mm -hmm. so they weren't. They weren't there, you know, making everybody listening, listen to them. They went, they went off and did their own thing. Do you think there's a tie? I don't, I don't know if this is the right phrasing for it between uh, being commercial and being efficient, which means that you just try to, you just try to compartmentalize things and maybe come up with rules versus being non-commercial and inefficient, which means you've got to soak in it for a while before you you kind of have it it's experiential learning I yeah mean, viola is experiential learning the people who made the rules studied with viola and then they say they invented the rules right right but they learned <laughs> she, mm -hmm. wouldn't, she wouldn't have told them because yeah. she never she wouldn't paul either they mm -hmm. didn't tell you what you were going to experience because then that limits what you're going to experience. And mm -hmm. this is a deep, you know, experiential learn, you know, this is what she learned from the progressives about, um, you know, from the great educators that uh, it's, it's, this is uh, like enlightenment thinking. It's like, you know, do we, uh, are we going to um, just fill bodies with knowledge and then it's sort of a closed thing or do we allow for you know experience and discovery and exploration and allow you know the the student and the player to make their own discoveries and that's viola mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that's paul in his way he was a very different kind of <laughs> teacher than viola he was a director mm -hmm. but um more you know and she was more of an educator yeah um, and so yeah that the, there's a difference there so the difference is instead of saying, okay, you need to do this, you need to do this, you, here's the three rules or the t five rules or the 10 rules, there, Viola has games that help the players learn how to work together spontaneously as a group. Mm -hmm. And they still, uh, you know, it, and so uh, the play, this is why her work is still so modern and kind of ahead. Right. And helpful and why it's still, you know, so popular with on uh, theater programs mm -hmm. is that it actually the she's 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 literally what is the you know she's teaching people how to communicate non-verbally as a group mm -hmm. and this solves uh many many problems and you don't need rules to do it once you play you, you need a side coach mm -hmm. and then once you play a game like give and take uh where you learn how to give and how to take within a group structure right. with a whole bunch of people and become completely aware of them so a group can move very swiftly and take fully um mm -hmm. and, and and give on a dime right mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. and then, then after you play it all you need after the um in the next game when everyone's talking over each other you can just call out give and take and the C's part you don't have to say you shut up you be quiet you you don't have <laughs> yeah, to yeah great you, you just because you know take. what you've learned they know what that means yeah and the C's part and they figure out how to solve that problem and I guarantee you when your players figure it out on their own 
they're going to solve the problem in a new way that's exciting and you've never seen it before and it's just it's it's great would you describe a lot of that as that word intuition that uh that you used earlier from your grandmother um yeah i mean well what happens is you know viola was also ahead of the game with uh quieting the mind mm-hmm. uh with the the mindfulness uh exercises that are part she wouldn't have used that term but getting the player calm down and focused i mean it's all about focus uh her work mm-hmm. Get, having so many ways to calm the player down bring them into the present time through their senses in a way that quiets the mind and allows the intu- intuition to come forth and then they don't need any rules because the intuition is always right. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're talking about kind of getting into a flow state. She has so many games that do this to the point where some of them are even almost training your consciousness to look for the right things to help you do that. Games that are, you know, some of the more advanced games, mm-hmm. um, like verbalizing the where and shadowing and shadowing the self. These are games you won't do until you're in a more advanced workshop. And they're, they're very helpful, you know, but, but all the way to the, some of the very earliest games, there's so many lessons about getting in the present time and staying there and the benefits of that to ourselves, our bodies, our mind, our, our, our ability to communicate, you know, that's all built in there. And I think the improv world is just discovering in a way that, oh yeah, we can do this. How do we do this? Mm-hmm. Guys, girls, ladies, men, women, check out. <laughs> Everybody check out Viola. Yeah. When looking at her her written work anyways and the description of the theater games that she has, I don't know if I don't know if you'd call them rules, but there are certain repeated themes. Yeah. that are in there. One of the repeated themes is show don't tell. Yeah. And I I don't know if that's sort of a a, a universal rule for her games or whether it is you know each game will have its own rules in a sense too right yeah games have rules for sure but is show don't tell a macro rule sure yeah we work on that over time we 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 always work on that and it's a side coaching show don't tell you know uh and it's because you know because that helps us enter the experience rather than well, like, you know, in television, they just go, you know, hey, little brother, see you later. And they're off, right? They don't have time to show and not tell, but we do have time right, <laughs> in right. most cases. But it's like, but getting, you know, but having a game where one of you knows who the little brother is and one of you doesn't, and they have to show without telling them. And it takes a whole scene to do it if you're really, really not telling, right? Yeah, Just yeah. putting them in the where, involving them in the activity. Well, a true relationship between them emerges. And at some point, the person, they, they know who they are to each other only in the present time, right? But showing and not telling allows for that. And then and then they know, oh, suddenly they know, yes, I'm, I am the older brother, I'm the little brother. And and it, it didn't happen just like that. It happened through being there together and exploring mm-hmm. that, exploring that relationship in the space. And we get a whole theatrical, exciting, interesting scene to watch out of it. 
you know. Um, but, you know, we, yeah, I always ask in workshop, why do we show and not tell in the theater? And you get all sorts of interesting answers, even from kids. They, yeah. they like they have smart answers to that question, too. Um, and, and even the, like you said, it's universal, even very new players, even kids will go because it involves the audience, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Because yeah. it includes everyone and it allows something to happen. Tell me about your view of the audience in, in, in a show. How would you describe their role? Well, I'm a hundred percent with Viola and that the audience is a fellow player. Right. Mm -hmm. And that Viola talks about the role, you know, when I teach when I teach improvisation for performance, we go deep into this, that the audience are our honored guests. And when we when we take this is Viola, when mm -hmm. we uh, when we take on that role of host, oh, I have to these are the things I have to do for my guests. I have to share my voice because what if they didn't hear me? I have to, I have to take stage because this is the moment everyone's giving me the opportunity to take. I have to make sure that everyone is included in the experience. It changes your relate, your, you know, your nervousness goes away. You just do the things you need to do as a host and everyone gets involved in putting on the show. So when I teach improvisation for performance, uh, I, the I give every single player roles and we have a big potluck at the end and everyone has to bring something and brownies has, and hummus. Brownies and hummus always. But <laughs> and, and then everyone has a job in, in setting it up and cleaning it up and also the theatrical work of putting on the show. And so it's um, again, and then the community feels that when they come in and it's yeah. their friends and family and they've never, you know, they, experience that being treated like the honored guests when they come in and it's something to see because it's it's very special it's just nice and they never you know it's usually free and that they get a nice buffet at the end and they the audience it's it's like nothing they've experienced and i just learned all that from paul that's how paul would do it and um I probably added the giving them the rules to take on you know mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. uh, but but um I, I think in this way, we don't have to worry about, you know, players still come in and they, they're that extra nervous energy that they bring from to a show. It can go a couple ways, right? You, I'm sure you know this. It can like oh, yeah. blow everything or it can just light everything up. Right. You right. know, and, and they forget everything they've learned or it all, they, people, even like people who are shy in workshop will come in with this extra energy because the audience is there and they give them that. And I don't know, in my experience, we work on maintaining our focus with all that energy. And then it just, it just works. Just doesn't say not everything's always the, the funniest, mm -hmm. I also, but, but it can be, they can't, it can be funnier than in workshop, which is hard to imagine or more exciting or more lively. I had a show in LAUSD for kids too over the last year. It just got basically shut down by COVID, but we were going in and playing theater games with Los An Title One, you know, elementary school kids in Los Angeles. We even did we did one for my daughter's school. She was in a public school there. And we would play theater games for and with them. And it was a very it was I it was like an educate. I it's it was for an edu uh, you know a nonprofit that put educational shows in, so yeah. we t we talked about the theater games and what we're doing and space objects and we played, the kids would play with us and we throw space balls into the crowd and they'd be like you know, and so I would say that I, you know, the more you involve the audience in the experience, 
the more they're with you and feel like they've played. Mm-hmm. And then it's all, it's all good. Yeah. It's interesting to me that there is a good chunk of the improvisation world that doesn't place a high value on the audience's experience. Yeah. Where do you think that comes from? Uh, I don't know. I find it hard to believe. It's sort of the same thing. Like sometimes I'd work with improv groups and they'd be like, why? We'd play a game that would help them share their voice Mm -hmm. across, like send sound into space and let it land on a fellow player. It's called extended sound. And, And it's, you know, it's making sure your voice is part of, you know, it, it's, it's your voice is a part of the theatrical experience and you can play around with it and you can use it. You need to make sure yeah. you're heard. And it's a very simple game, very important game. They were like, why are we doing this? They couldn't get it. I was like, mm. are you in the theater or not? I mean, do you have people come in? They're like, yeah, we perform, but you don't play around with your voice. You don't, <laughs> like, you don't, you don't use everything you have as part of the theatrical experience. Like to me, I couldn't. And they were like, well, not really, but, I was like, all right, well, try, you know, maybe you never know if you're, you know, you might get a laugh out of it. Why, if that's your goal, right? try that. But yeah, I think it's not considering it uh, back to that issue that mm-hmm. the, for, the for, forgetting that it's part of the theater. Yeah. And I suppose if your, your improvisational experience is all in one room for audiences of less than 50 yeah. Um, then projecting your voice is generally not as big of a deal as if you're to. playing for, you know, hundreds or in a large space or whatever it is. But it is because they forget, we all forget that some of our, you know, maybe all your, your, your audience is just young people like you, some of these groups too. My dad, after a while, he was like, he would say about extended sound. This is the most important game because he was losing his hearing. Yeah, sure, sure. And right. it helped. Uh, it helped him hear us. Right. And so we have to remember that our audience may be hard of hearing. They may be born with it. They may be older and they're losing their hearing. Like you have to. It's not just you have to share your voice in the theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even in improv. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't mean you have to like be stentorian because you can even whisper sound across the space and let it land. But sound, as Viola says, sound occupies space in the theater. And until you get that, mm-hmm. you're missing something. Well, and you may whisper differently. That's right. Yeah. From the stage than uh, in person, in a regular setting. Yeah. And Viola even has games for that. She's got stage whisper games. There's like nothing she didn't think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the way I've heard it described, and I think this may be her words too, is that if there was a problem that she discovered, she would develop a game to attack that problem, not necessarily one where she had a prescription for the answer, right? But so that the the participants could figure out an appropriate answer, right, for them, right? Absolutely. So that's why. So imagine working with the population that she was working with, which were, as she said, everyday people, mm-hmm. right? She was a social worker, basically, and you know, a theater person, and eventually she had her own theater school, but she was working with kids. Um, but when she was started out, she was working with recent immigrants and mm-hmm. children. And so there's language barriers with both groups. People are learning language, you're the, the, a shared language with both groups. I guess that would mm-hmm. be maybe a better way to say it. And um, and so she wanted a nonverbal system, 
you know, where they could learn experientially for themselves. And yeah, so yeah, basically imagine that you can't rely on things like, oh, just project, you know, you can't rely on what you would get in theater training, like in a more specialized school. It doesn't help to -hmm. just do that, right? So finding games that helped people share their voice for each other and the realization that they needed to. It also is like, why do you do something? Do you do it for your teacher to please your teacher or you do it? Do you do it for the love of the art form? Um, and so your, your audience, your fellow player can hear you so you can be heard. So you're in the, all in the experience together. I mean, it's a profound thing, experiential learning. With the move to online improv, those create different challenges. Yeah. What is a Spolin-esque way to attack some of those things and develop games or exercises to address some of the new limitations or considerations online? I have just been adapting Viola's games. So I have not found the need yet to, I mean, create new ones because she was already addressing these problems that we're having because what she said the techniques of the theater are the techniques of communicating right and mm-hmm. what we're trying to do now is communicate in this different way like for example that game give and take that i was talking about we yeah. play it we play it all standing in a circle maybe like half your normal size group can't do it with too many people until you're ready to do that but Mm -hmm. um and then any player can take by making a sound or a movement but when any player takes all the other players must give they're in waiting Mm -hmm. to move they're not moving and then any other player can take at any time so there's only one player moving at any given time but any player can take and you're like well how do you do this you know but through the process you begin to be able to work together in a very complex nonverbal way. So you could think how important that is for devised theater, obviously, and improvisational theater where you need to be able to do that spontaneously as a group. Uh, well, in person, in, in an in-person workshop, we're really developing this 360 degree awareness right. of each other where someone can take behind you and you sense it almost with your, like your senses are super heightened. Mm-hmm. Um, in Zoom, we're playing it on a flat field, and it's actually helping us develop what the the peripheral vision <laughs> needed for Zoom, like to be able to play together with Zoom, because it's also complex with four to six people playing it on Zoom. Um, it has its own challenges, and what helps you take? Some, you know, what's going to help you take with clarity? And sometimes they learn, they figure out, oh, sound helps, and sometimes they can do it silently. So. I'm finding um, that online workshops are this amazing gift right now to all of us because we're able to get out of the head and be in the present time and connect with each other, all these things. And we need it so badly right now that there's almost like, and then we'll all spend like 20 minutes on our, well, maybe not that long, but on our like (laughs) feeling self with self and some of the meditative warmups because people need it so badly. We come in every week with our nervous systems and an uproar from the election or the pandemic or, you know, whatever the case may be. We're so, it's like the slow motion trauma we're experiencing is, you know, that the theater games have been very, very helpful for that. But what you do is what you do in every theater game. But by working on the parts, we're working on the whole. So we begin slowly building up aware so we can all enter into the same collective where, even though we are in different places. And pretty soon, uh, every 
we play her game. We play the where game and then emerging where. So each player goes in and places an object in the space and, and then another one. And then they all have to go back in and contact every object that emerged in part one, all well relating to each other in as the who engaging in the what, their activity. And then they get used to building aware together even though we are not in the same way and objects, pretty soon objects are flying back and forth and people are touching each other through the screen. And I, I, it's, it's remarkable. So I'm just doing Spolen games. They are adapting themselves for Zoom and they were teaching us what we need to play together on Zoom in a fully physical, uh, spontaneous, theatrical, you know, to create that kind of experience. It is, we're, we're even playing transformation of relationship on Zoom. Where I'm, I, I sometimes it'll elude me how to adapt a game for a while, mm-hmm. and then eventually through more play, it'll I'll realize, oh, this is what we need to do uh, to solve the problem of how to play that game on Zoom. And I found very few that I cannot play on Zoom. We've even played Contact on Zoom, where you, in order to speak, you have to make physical contact. I'll try any, I'll try tag games on Zoom. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> figuring it out. So the the adaptations that you're doing are based on the technical limitations, right? Is that the the primary yeah, adaptation exactly. that you're thinking through? Yeah. Do you find that there are other distractions that keep people from having a point of focus that you've had to navigate through? You know, no. Because, like I said, I'll spend a lot of time calming us down, mm-hmm. moving us from a sympathetic, you know, the, the like sympathetic nervous system response to the parasympathetic. I started doing this before the pandemic, but before anybody goes on stage, we do another moment of feeling self with self. They, we literally take our time. Workshops take forever with me now, but <laughs> as they did with Viola, by the way, Paul, Paul would do yeah. a run through him quicker because that was just his, and we get through stuff quicker because we'd get to realizations quicker as well, because something in him that, you know, the fire of Paul burned away any pretense. (laughs) I can't, I'm not Paul. I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. So I have us all do feeling self with self and different of her exercises before each scene, Mm -hmm. before Mm -hmm. any game, we'll take a moment, take a deep breath, exhale, feel your feet. Mm -hmm. They're able to focus. Focus happens if you if you create the conditions in the workshop that allow for it. Yeah, I feel like the concept of time and freedom from distraction and all of that are necessary ingredients. And then there's just so many conditions that we can put ourselves in that take away from all of those things. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to have a place to go where you can focus. Let's talk about the word comedy. Um, when you put that into the mix, yeah, is that you know just thinking to the Second City experience originally and some of the early experiences was comedy ever a primary goal? Do you think? I don't know. I mean, I think it must have been, but it was the, the comedy that they were after was certainly beyond. They were looking beyond what they already knew. You mm-hmm. know, they were trying to make something that spoke to the social conditions around them, right? Yeah. And they were trying to, they were very, very smart people. So they were trying to make something. But I but I, I think that, yeah, their intention was to be funny. They weren't, but not always. There are certain scenes when you look back. There's some scenes with Severn and 
Barbara Harris that are pretty much theatrical scenes with moments of humor, but they're about relationship. Mm -hmm. So would, um, I'm not trying to put words into your mouth. I'm also in some ways trying to unpack, <clears throat> unpack some of this personally. One of the common things that I think improvisers will talk about is comedy not being a specific goal, but a consequence of just going through a process. Right. Paul, Paul would say, you don't have to be funny. Humanity's funny. You know, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and Viola wouldn't, I, I don't think would discuss it at all. It's going to be spontaneity is funny. I mean, spontaneity makes us laugh. I, I don't even know if it's funny. I, I've even stopped saying what, make, you know, talking about it in terms of laughter, but just like a response, you know, what, what makes the audience respond or helps the audience respond? Because that it's like, I don't even want to limit what the response might be. When we right. say that what makes them laugh, it's like as if that's the only goal. But but yeah, they were interested. Paul was interested. They were interested in comedy early on. Paul was. I don't think Viola ever cared. She just wanted, you know, they were funny, though. Both yeah. Of them, you know, yeah. I'm sure those shows she did with her kids were, you know, funny as hell. Mm -hmm. <laughs> with the little kids from the neighborhood improvising, you know, taking suggestions from the audience and but they, but people also described years and years later seeing space objects. Okay. And that's a response that the audience has. What, what do you mean? What uh, what type of response are you are you getting at there? Well, like someone at at my dad's memorial read a letter from the first time he'd ever met Paul was when they were both eight years old. Okay. Paul had been one of the kids in one of Viola's groups that came into their school and did a little show <laughs> of theater games. Okay. So they, um, these guys were born in 1927. And then Paul went to that school. So they became best friends throughout their life, you know, mm -hmm. but he described seeing, seeing Paul when he was eight. And he described in this letter in vivid detail, seeing the steam come off of a, of a space tea kettle. That's what he remembered. Okay. Yeah. And I think that that we, you know, if we neglect that, that's a 72 year memory. I don't know that they'd remember the laugh necessarily. They, I mean, they remember the feeling, right, <laughs> that right. wonderful feeling of the, and, and the, of what made them laugh, but they'll remember that space object for the rest of their life. So that's what I'm always telling my players, like go for that. And then they'll, if the, if you get that kind of laughter that comes out of just pure astonishment you're really there you are if you oh, even if you only get one i think there is something to paying attention to what the what the laughter or the responses come to because it is different i've, I've shared this yeah. story once before but very early on in my improv training before i you know started doing this professionally i remember being in a workshop and our scene was one other person and I, we were in this scene together and we were at a, um, like a petting zoo area where we were feeding the goats. And I made some comment because this other guy's holding his hand out to the goats and he had his thumb up in the middle of his hand. I said, you got to put your thumb to the side, otherwise the goat will bite it. And that's not very funny. I was just sort of right. seeing the scene, but people laughed at that and right. it was... I think what I, I think what it was is that people became immersed in the play mm -hmm. that we were experiencing. And I still remember that moment, which wasn't a comedic moment, but it was a joyful 
Right, right, exactly. And the audience experienced it as funny. And yeah, we talk about that a lot with gibberish too, because like with gibberish interpreter, a game like that, like sometimes what the audience, what the, the audience players will laugh at in workshop or the audience out of workshop is just because the, the interpretation matched what they felt like maybe they couldn't have put it in words, but the translation was just there for them and they, they laugh. And so I'll bring that up in workshop that, you know, very often when you're on focus is when mm-hmm. you get that laughter, that response from the audience and that, and so we can, we can pretty much safely, not very often, always. And, and we, so we can safely, I always just encourage my players to let go, like, like everything else they can let that need to be funny, the fear that they have to be funny, all that go, let that go like a great weight lifted off their shoulders and just follow, yeah. trust the focus to work for yeah. them. Is that what you might describe as an improviser's uh, superpower is the ability to be focused? Yes. Viola said to be conscious all the time does not stop the flow. And we work on that. It, it's, uh, she talks about artistic detachment. This is a very interesting the, what she describes as artistic detachment is that of being so unfocused that you see and feel and hear everything just the way you would like from the audience seats where mm-hmm. you're so comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the audience never misses anything really. Right. But when you, as soon as we get on stage, we're like, ah, you know, uh, I can't see, I can't hear. The, what, everything goes, the senses go, right? But yeah. she talks about, you know, so she has a lot of methods to get us into that state where we can experience the wear, enter into it, see it, touch it, relate to it, you know, and it brings us in. It con- That contact with this object calms us down long enough, letting our hand remember the feel of the object mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. any number of her side coachings, giving it its size and weight and shape. And it mm-hmm. calms us down a lot, a long enough to experience it and be there. And as Paul would say, don't pretend to be human, be human. And then we, yeah. then we're there and then we're we have everything we need to play, period. So the artistic detachment, just to make sure I'm tracking, is where the artist has become the character and is or is less <clears throat> or not aware of their own ego yeah. or self in the moment. She describes it almost like you're watching yourself, but not like not like a split self. You're not judging yourself. It's almost like you're back there yeah. and you're watch you're feeling your character move through because you've you've you know she talks about the the grip of the past is always on us right and we were mm-hmm. when we're in that present time we're released from the grip of the past and the past is or the judgments attitudes what the mothers the fathers should have should have you know all those things yeah they're, they're gone so you're able to see clearly and that's it it's about perceiving without preconception and when you enter into that she calls that artistic detachment it's like you're almost watching yourself move through the experience but you're there you're still there and it's 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 hard to explain so i should shut up but when you when you feel it when you know it you know it and when you see a player in that state you know it right well that's it is a little hard to describe but i feel like i yeah. I feel what you're saying too. You've probably experienced it at times yeah. because it, it once you've been improvising a long time, you can get to that state. You probably do. Well, and the audience is going to respond positively because what you said earlier is the audience doesn't miss anything. Mm-mm. And if they see that you are, you know, quote unquote, in your head or manufacturing what's happening on stage as opposed to flowing in it. Yeah. You know, the the flow aspect 
is the natural feel of play. Yeah. Don't you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which goes back to Neva Boyd. Yeah. So this is why we put, you know, I've had people all, you know, I've dealt with this ever since I started teaching, side coaching, as Viola would say. Mm -hmm. uh, and before they think, why am I playing? That's just kid stuff. Yeah. Viola, people got the, people gave Viola grief about this. Uh -huh. That's just kid stuff. I should be, you know, but getting out of the head requires getting out of the head. The play, <laughs> the play's the thing, right? Plus, we give adults too much credit anyway. <laughs> uh, exactly, but that all that's just fear. Yeah. All that is fear, mm -hmm. and 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 your players are going to respond to being asked to get out of the head in a million different ways, right? With so right. much resistance in every form, and sometimes not. And and I think you know, as a as a side coach, you just have to keep getting them pushing, getting them to play, and that's all. How much of side coaching would you say is just returning people to a point of focus. That's it. That's it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's all of it. Because I think a lot of what might be called side coaching is more prescriptive than that. It's more directing. Yeah. Yeah. But those, I guess you could say that's just different um, techniques yeah. or approaches sure. or things like that. But that is not yeah. the approach or school that, that you would subscribe to. No, I mean, if I'm directing a show, it's going to be a little different. Sometimes you're like, we don't have that much time. So like, and there are people I've worked with as a side coach for years in general, if I'm casting them. Um, but it's like, yeah, you're going to be a little quicker on the draw or, or, mm -hmm. or give notes or things like that. But but in but in workshop, side coaching is all you need. Viola's, yeah. uh, Viola's evaluation methods and the side coaching, they're neutral. Mm -hmm. There's not mm -hmm. judgment in them. We ask a question and you think it through. Mm -hmm. And the player thinks it through and comes to a that there's no Viola talks about approval disapproval the theory her theory of approval disapproval that we're all sort of bound up in that because we live in an authoritarian culture that sort of controls <laughs> we control we are controlled by the approval and disapproval of our bosses our parents our you know she, she says the whole social structure right mm -hmm. but we can't really be free to play until an experience until we're free of that. And that's a hard thing. So we just work on that as well with the side coaching, their neutral expressions. They're not like, you do this, you do that, go right, go left. You know, mm -hmm. they're just give and take, see each other, see and be seen, you know, let your hand remember the feel of the object. And, yeah. then, and then the player responds each in their own way. The, the, the last thing you brought up in terms of the feel of the object I went back and looked at the theater games book and as I was kind of thumbing through it, I don't know if this is right or not, but it felt like to me the where had more prominence than I had remembered. Would you say that's so as opposed to the who and the what and all that sort of thing? Certainly, uh, yes. I don't know about your memory. I can't. Right, <laughs> I right. Think to that, but uh, but sure, yeah. <laughs> you, then then yeah, we don't even discuss character for like till week eight. Normally in a workshop, we'll do some. We'll play animal images, and you know nothing until the where is what helps us all. The where is what's actually between us in the present time, and it helps. Mm -hmm. It brings the objects in the where are you know the where's the playing field. 
says Viola. It's our theatrical reality. And it allows us to enter into that state of flow because when we're so involved in making it real, then it sort of becomes real to us. Then we're really there. We don't have to pretend and make stuff up. That we can get out of the head. It gives us the opportunity because it involves our body and our senses. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, the where is everything. So my problem with a lot of contemporary improv is that they ignore it because it's just another thing. But if comedy is your goal, so much, even just comedy's lost. Right. If we don't get into the where and explore it. Mm-hmm. But it, it does so much work for us. So, yeah. yeah, we always, everything starts with the where in Spolin. Well, recognizing that we're not entirely stopped, but we are in an unusual environment when you and I are talking here where the live theater is, at least in the U.S., it's not available in any meaningful way, at least as far as I'm concerned. When we restart, if you could advise the improv community as to what they should do differently with regard to the craft, let's say, what would you say is, you know, the things that they should most do or are, or at least most missing that they should focus on going forward? The where. <laughs> I think the where. You know, where has improv lost its way and gotten into trouble? It's comedy. I'm sorry, but the urge to create comedy, well, it doesn't matter, you know, I'm sorry if that really offended your humanity, but it's just a joke, that kind of stuff that you're, and these people getting their hackles up about it, that they are being called on behavior that harms another. Yeah. And then for the response to be, well, it was a joke, you know, like maybe rethink that. (laughs) <laughs> I think that I think the improv community is definitely stepping up and trying to respond to this. But if they, you know, what we do is based on seeing another human being before us in all their glory and being seen and connecting, the intuition is activated in that. And if 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 what you're doing is coming from the intuition, it cannot be offensive to another human. That's not its role in our life. It's to help us, you know, with intuitive awareness, Viola says, comes certainty, right? And it, it, I don't know, just rethink the comedy stuff. Let it flow from everything else. Trust your audience to have mm-hmm. an experience and to follow you and uh, see what happens. And and um, because those kind of jokes are old jokes anyway. Who wants old jokes, apparently? Right. I think that is uh, maybe always the case. And I think if, if you are in a position where you're saying it's just a joke, you are putting your experience over that of the audience's. Yeah. Because the harm you cause is not is is less than your ability to say whatever you want to say. Yeah, and that that can be toxic, and almost always will be toxic. I think. Yeah, I I, I just think there's so much in the art form that's lost, and I have nothing. I like I like comedy. I have nothing against it, but obviously there's some there's a there's some you know growing pains going on mm-hmm. which are surprising in that the the roots of the art form at least in the united states come from the very opposite kind of impulse in that it's educational it's community it's community minded it's inclusive the roots of of what viola was doing at whole house and in the community after that and so what we're experiencing now is a feeling like no it's not inclusive you know it what 
that that people are starting to stand up and say, I'm not included in this experience. So let's all just find ways to include each other. And if if it's your comedy, if your focus on comedy that's stopping that, rethink that and find things that are maybe even more, I don't know, exciting and new and entertaining for your audience. We can we can rethink what that all means, I think. The lack of commercial impact, I think, is also going to be interesting because given what you just said, the thing that I think about is that your dad left Second City because the goals were different at the time. And some of those may have been a commercial focus versus a different focus, right? And when we get back to the stage being available, are these sort of higher goals in some ways? I don't, maybe that's not fair to say, but I feel like it is. Are those the things that we're going to lean into as opposed to, well, we know we can produce some some quick commoditized comedy and get people back into the stage. So let's just do that again. Well, sure. Well, don't, but don't forget that when Paul left Second City and he went to start and, and experimented in the park with his Carol and Viola and his friends and, and then started the game theater, that that's where he discovered Story Theater, which ran on Broadway for over a year and he had a Canadian TV show and it's still being done in every, you know. So yeah. how do we think about what, the discoveries you're missing when you rely on the old. Yeah. The yeah. known. Right. You can, right. you know, and, and that's all that. Yeah. I mean, that's what I mean. You, you the, com- the commercial, what does it spring from? It springs from something real and true. Right. And then it gets commodified and it gets messed up over time with all the input of everybody trying to make it even more right. commercial, but just trust. Yeah. You'll, you'll dis- when you play, you'll discover something. Just trust in it, and maybe it'll be something totally new, the way Paul and Viola did. As as we close, I mean, I'll, I'll make sure people can get to the to links for the online workshops that you're doing. But and, you moved you moved to Wisconsin yeah. with a bit of a thought of, uh, I think, a vision for the future. Is, is this something we can talk about a little bit? Sure. I mean, I'm not very far into it, but you know, my father taught theater games in his barn in Door County for 30 years or uh, a good 20 something. Because mm-hmm. he, he might have, re- he retired a little bit before we stopped and then passed away. So maybe 25 years, but we kept going. And then over the last few years, we haven't done it, but I would like to, you know, I hope to make, we would have these wonderful week-long intensives in Door County, which as you know, Whit, being a Wisconsin person, is one of the most beautiful places in the world. It's full of natural mm-hmm. wonders. It's a tourist hub. It's full of, you know, there's, there's you can swim and sail and do whatever you like, pet goats and all sorts of, <laughs> far, you know, anything, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful place to visit and live. Um, and so I would like to get a summer program going in a nonprofit where we're getting, um, you know, theater games in the schools and training people to teach theater games and uh, all sorts of stuff like that. So yes, that is my long-term goal. Obviously right now we're waiting out COVID and. Right. And it's probably not going to be summer 2021, I would guess. I don't think so. Nope. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But something to watch for. Yeah. Yeah. And um, a lot of people, this is, 
there's a lot of arts organizations already in Door County. And I think it's, it's an improv, it's a historically significant improvisational site because Paul moved up here and, uh, and people came here for years. So we're going to have that going again. Yeah. I don't, I don't know when they stopped doing those, but I was tempted and then they weren't there because yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a close drive. So hopefully that does come soon and that'd be, that'd yeah. be so. Well, Aretha, I really appreciate this time. Thank you for helping us think back to the the roots of improv and the importance of those roots and getting back to those, I think will serve us all well. And thank you for doing your part to, you know, kind of show, show a way that is informed by the family experience. <laughs> well, thank you, Wit. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really nice talking with you. It's hard to know what to highlight. There's so much. Clearly, every improviser will benefit from a re-examination of Viola Spolin's work and an introduction or proper reintroduction of how she approached improvisation. But let me highlight two concepts, intuition and focus. Regarding intuition, I love Viola's vision for a world of accessible intuition. Coupled with the notion that with intuitive awareness comes certainty, we have a recipe for a shared vivid world on the stage with our audiences and our fellow performers. And to access that world requires a deep focus in our work. And I trust that that focus will do the work for us and that will allow us to access our intuition. But there's a discipline to it that can get sidetracked by tips and tricks and shortcuts. Aretha's workshops and side coaching and a more pure swollen experience are more accessible now than they were before given Aretha's move online. But it's also an exciting prospect that there are plans for initiatives on the family farm in Wisconsin. But as that will be a little while before those occur, I'll make sure you can connect to Aretha and her teaching on the episode's webpage at improvcomedyconnection.com. There's one more episode left in season three, and it'll be a great one. In the meantime, I'm lining up some fantastic guests for season four. I'll take a short break, and I'm open to hearing your ideas of how to make the podcast more impactful for you. Do you have an idea for a guest, a shift in the format, topics to address in a future episode? Let me know by getting a hold of me on social media or by email at wit at improvcomedyconnection.com. I'm doing this to be of help to you as we work together to connect more deeply with each other and our audiences through comedy. My name again is Witch Hiller, and I'm an improviser out of Milwaukee with Fish Sticks Comedy. You can check us out at fishstickscomedy.com, and you can connect with me on social media at Witch Hiller on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also go to witchhiller.com for additional content and resources to help you on your comedy or communication journey. Thanks again for tuning in to the Improv Comedy Connection.